0: More than 40 million Americans are supported by the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. As of 2020, however, nearly half of households receiving SNAP benefits still did not have safe and reliable access to food or food security. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Hilary Seligman, a professor of medicine and of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Seligman has co-authored a prospective article about bolstering SNAP to reduce food insecurity. Dr. Seligman, how many people in the United States are considered food insecure? And what are the short and long-term health implications of food insecurity?
1: About 49 million people in the United States are living in households that report being food insecure. And these households report that at some time during the previous year, they lacked adequate access to enough food to live an active, healthy life which means they were either worrying about or changing their dietary practices in order to meet a really reduced household food budget, which generally means shifting their dietary intake towards foods that are cheaper and less healthy. And what we know about the dietary patterns that people are forced to adopt when they're food insecure, these are the same dietary patterns that predispose people to chronic disease like diabetes and obesity and heart failure, and other cardiovascular diseases. And so we do see a really tight link between food insecurity and poor health outcomes. We see those poor health outcomes across the life course from pregnancy all the way to older adults and the final stages of life. And so we think of food insecurity as being an important modifiable risk factor for poor health and a really key intervention point for reducing health disparities.
0: So one of the primary programs to address that enormous amount of food insecurity in the United States is SNAP. Who's generally eligible for SNAP and how are the benefits allocated?
1: The USDA funds and administers the SNAP program by partnering with state agencies that are responsible for the -the on-the-ground enrollment and distribution of benefits to people who qualify for the program. And in general, people who qualify for SNAP are people with low household incomes, generally less than about 135% of the federal poverty line, people who do not have many assets at home because a high amount of assets will disqualify you from SNAP, and people in general who are documented citizens of the United States. These are the general eligibility criteria set forth by the USDA, but states do have a little bit of flexibility to change those eligibility criteria and make them more generous under certain circumstances.
0: So in that regard, in 2021, the USDA permanently increased maximum benefit amounts for SNAP recipients. So how much will the typical household now receive each month? And will that be enough to close food security gaps?
1: Yeah, this change is thought by many experts to be one of the largest changes in SNAP policy since the modern implementation of the program in the mid-1970s. And the current estimate is that maximum household benefit for a family of four will go up from about $646 in 2020 to about $835 in 2022. This is an enormous increase, and it's a particularly enormous increase when you look at it next to the scope of the gap that people report they have in their food budget. So when we ask people on SNAP to report how much money would you need to just meet your weekly food needs, a low-income household in the United States reports that they would need, on average, about an additional $18 per week. And so you can see when you think of that $18 per week and the increase in the monthly benefit of almost $200, that we're going to be bringing a lot more households into food security by this policy change, meaning that SNAP is going to become even more effective at reducing food insecurity in the United
0: States. In a related perspective article, Mosefarian and Glickman discuss how child nutrition reauthorization Could also be used to advance children's health and nutrition. So, could school meal programs and other child focused programs augment the health benefits of these increased SNAP funds?
1: Absolutely. I think when we look long term at how we create a successful program in the United States to eliminate food insecurity, but also to make sure that every household in the US has adequate to adequate nutrition, what we need is really a layering of programs. Some people are eligible only for SNAP, others only for the National School Lunch Program. Some people are eligible for WIC today, but they aren't going to be eligible for WIC in two or three years. And so really, when we put into place these layered programs that allow people to have support for accessing healthy foods at their grocery store, in their school, at their work site, every food environment that they encounter... This is how we think it's going to be really effective in the long term to reduce disparities in dietary intake and reduce those health inequities that are associated with diet.
0: In your article, you suggest one approach to broad SNAP reform, which would involve reconfiguring the program to resemble a universal basic income program. Can you explain how that approach would work?
1: The universal basic income approach is getting a lot of enthusiasm and momentum right now because of its simplicity. And essentially, the assumption of the universal basic income is that it is a lot easier to distribute benefits as a single bundle than it is to categorize benefits and distribute them separately for food, like the SNAP program does, housing, like the Section 8 housing voucher does, energy assistance, like the LIHEAP program does, Etc., cetera, et cetera. And so the idea is that we could streamline the administration of these programs by combining them into a single program and also acknowledge the fact that households are much better able to understand where and when their household food budget needs to flex to meet their rental needs or their food needs or their transportation needs than the government is able to do so. And if you give people a universal basic income that is not necessarily attached to a single type of expenditure, then people might have the flexibility to use the money where and when they needed it most to afford basic necessities. And there are pilot programs of universal basic incomes in place in a number of different places in the United States. If we were to reconfigure SNAP, for example, as a universal basic income, Everybody in the United States under a certain income threshold would just automatically receive a monthly benefit that was intended to purchase healthy food. And by doing that, what we would really be doing is committing ourselves to a nation to making sure that every man, woman, and child in the United States had access to the food and in particular, the healthy food they needed to stay healthy. And this is a way that we can really start moving from addressing food insecurity as an acute social need and towards the more broad-spread structural changes that allow us to really address food insecurity as a social determinant of health. The implication of this kind of universal basic income would be that everybody in the United States would have enough money in their food budget to afford the items that are often perceived as luxury items in low-income households that are foods that are good for you. So what foods are often perceived as luxury items in low-income households, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean meats, the exact kinds of foods that we know we have to increase intake of if we're going to eliminate nutrition-related disparities in the United States.
0: Finally, how politically feasible is broad reconfiguration of SNAP? And if the answer is not very, are there more incremental policy approaches that could shore up the program and expand its health benefits?
1: One of the things that I like about reconfiguring SNAP as a universal basic income or giving a broad section of the United States access to food benefits is that I think we could engage a number of different partners in it. And in particular, a number of different partners that come to this issue from different perspectives. And so some people think that we should be investing as much money as we need to to make sure that children don't go hungry at night. And for those people, changing SNAP into a universal basic income makes sense because it would eliminate about 98% of food insecurity in the United States. On the other hand, many other people are really interested and invested in reducing so much of the administrative costs Of a really difficult and complex ecosystem that provides food benefits in the United States. And reconfiguring SNAP as a universal basic income might reduce those administrative costs considerably. And finally, the long term effects of food insecurity have enormous impacts for the United States economic viability and the United States military preparedness. We have known for a long time, and it was actually in the roots of the WIC program, that when we are able to ensure that children are food secure and have adequate access to nutrition, they are more likely to achieve their educational potential, they're more likely to become economically self-sufficient in adulthood, and they're more likely to qualify to join our armed services when they reach adulthood. And that makes us also a nation that is prepared for military. And so For many different reasons, many different stakeholders might be engaged in reforming our structures and systems for providing food benefits in a way that we reach more people with the healthy food they need.
0: Thank you, Dr. Seligman.